All right, so let's begin by looking at the first seven verses of chapter 17, starting at verse 1. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord. I want to stop there and ask you who is leading them, commanding the way in which they go. Who? The Lord. Their journey is according to the commandment of the Lord. Of course, he's there physically in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Okay, so they're going, you know, they've left the wilderness of sin and they pitch their tents in a place called Rephidim. And, uh uh-oh, there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore, the people did chide with Moses. What does chide mean? They argued with him, they confronted him, they mumbled and grumbled. That's all included in that word. And here's what they said. Give us water that we may drink. There's not even a please in there, is there? Just give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Isn't that an awful accusation to make against Moses? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. They were at the verge of wanting to kill him. Verse 5, and the Lord said unto Moses, go on before the people and take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod, thy shepherd's staff, in other words, wherewith thou smotest the river, that would be the Nile when he turned it to blood, take in thine hand and go. And then in verse 6, the Lord says, behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? That is a terrible question. So after last time we were together, and I hope you enjoyed the testimonies of Lois and Christine, did you? If you did not, you can pick up the C. If you weren't here, you can pick up the CDs. Um, they thoroughly enjoyed their time here. Not so much your trip back home because it took them two days to get back. There was some trouble with the plane, and they had to uh, divert to Philadelphia and spend the night in a cold airport without heat. But it was quite a choppy, choppy flight, and I am so glad I was not on that plane with them. <laughs> They were glad to have been here, and they really loved you all so much. Anyway, after that, the last time we were here, we talked about God's gracious gift of manna from heaven and also providing the Israelites with quail. And then he proceeded, of course, to guide them, and every day they would get the manna, not so often the quail. That was a special thing, you know, at Thanksgiving. (laughs) Uh, But he proceeded to guide them from place to place as they moved ever closer to Mount Sinai. 
That is where they are going. They don't know it, but the Lord knows it. And what is he going to do when they get to Mount Sinai? Give them the law, exactly, through Moses. Now, the next major campsite for Israel is this place called Rephidim. It was where she was going to experience her next God-given test. Remember, the wilderness is all about tests. One test from God after another. Also, while she is still encamped in Rephidim, she is going to have her first encounter with an outside enemy. And that will be the Amalekites. Because of the fact that Israel failed with a big F for failed, her first water test, which was at Marah, where the water, when they got there, was what? Bitter. And instead of turning to the Lord and saying, please do something about this bitter water so we don't die of thirst, what did they do? They mumbled and they grumbled. And so, therefore, they got an F on that test. But God is gracious, and he, he allowed her to have a repeat exam. Any of you ever need, when you were in school, to take a repeat exam? Because you didn't do so well on the first one. And your teacher was so gracious and said, that's okay. You can take it over again, and I'll take the average between the two or something like that. Or maybe even just wipe out the first test. <laughs> That's a nice teacher, isn't it? So God was very gracious. He's going to give them a repeat exam. However, this time, the situation is actually worse than finding undrinkable bitter water, as they did at Mara. I was thinking that at least with the bitter water, they could cleanse themselves and let their cattle get in it, you know, their flocks get in the water and be refreshed, and they could cleanse their bodies a little bit. They couldn't drink it, but they could at least feel like they've had a shower or something. But this time, they couldn't even bathe in bitter water because guess what? In Rephidim, there was no water at all. No water. Now, as we have been learning, Israel's wilderness journey involved a lot more than just reaching her final destination, the promised land of Canaan. There was a lot more involved in that journey. It was God's spiritual boot camp for her. He was trying to teach her to look to him in faith as provider and protector. She very much needed to be matured as a nation. She had just hatched out as a nation, and she was still very, very immature. He needed to mature her to be a nation of strong faith and godly character so that she could then bring him glory as his witnesses to the rest of the world. And this is the same truth for you and I. Our life walk with Christ, our wilderness journey, is, is, well, you know, the end goal is heaven, yes, but there's a lot more involved. That's why it doesn't take us as soon as we're saved, right? He leaves us here in the wilderness, so and he has a path that he has designed specifically for each and every one of us. It's individually orchestrated by him in the way that he has chosen for us. He knows us better than we know ourselves, so he knows what each of us needs to be mature, to get mature. 
you know, to be conformed into his likeness so that we then might honor and glorify him to the lost world around us. And as with Israel, he is there every step of the way with us, isn't he? Wasn't he there for Israel every step of the way? Guiding her by those pillars, cloud and fire? He was with her. It's even better for you and I because he's with us where? Inside. Inside of us guiding us. Even when we don't realize it. The steps of a good man are what? Ordered by the Lord. That goes for a good woman too. (laughs) Now remember the wilderness serves as a type of this world. The wilderness pictures this world. And there is absolutely nothing in this world that will permanently satisfy the thirst and hunger of the human soul. As much as people try to find something to fill that God-shaped vacuum in their heart, they can't find it. But usually, in the world, but usually that Truth is only learned by experience. So in these first seven verses of chapter 17, Israel was given a second opportunity to pass her water test. (laughs) Now, I was thinking about the manna. Remember, the manna did not fall on the dirt or the ground. What did it fall upon? The dew of the ground. You know, the manna didn't get dirty, (laughs) didn't get contaminated by the ground because it fell on the dew. Well, when they picked up the manna to eat it, the dew must have, you know, helped to moisten their their tongues, their mouths, but it didn't satisfy their um, their their deep thirst. And now they're noticing that their water supply is getting again dangerously low. And so they're starting to panic. But instead of looking to God to provide, instead of turning him to him and saying, Lord, now you did a miracle at Mara by turning bitter water to sweet water so we could drink it. So could you perform some kind of a miracle to provide us with water? Instead of doing that, they again failed the water exam <laughs> all over again. Actually, their sin here at Rephidim is even worse because instead of just murmuring against Moses, she is chiding with him. She is quarreling with him. Uh, The people actually accuse him of having brought them out of Egypt in order to do what? Can you imagine? You just, you went through all that mess with Pharaoh and all that trouble just to bring us out here to kill us, to kill our children, and to kill our cattle. Isn't that a terrible thing to say to him after all he had been through? And then, in fact, they work themselves into such a frenzy that they're actually ready to stone him to death. At Mara, also, if you compare, if you go back to that account, you find out that they had asked Moses what they would drink. When they got there and found out the water was bitter, they said, well, what shall we drink? What will we drink? Now here, they don't even ask. They demand. They demand water. They say, give us water. They demanded, really, that he prove that his authority was from God. They were questioning his motive for leading them, right? And saying, you brought us out here just to see us all die of thirst. Maybe you're sadistic. (laughs) They're they're, uh, questioning his leadership. 
They're questioning his authority. They're, they're just really questioning everything about his character. And they're seriously thinking of killing him. How would you like to be in his shoes, his sandals? How would you? Poor guy. Don't you feel sorry for him? I mean, 80 years old, he should be golfing and enjoying retirement. And here he's leading two million dumb sheep around. <laughs> Stubborn sheep. <laughs> After everything he had done for them, they were totally thankless and, 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 and cruel. But even worse than that is their treatment of God. Verse 2 tells us that Israel was actually tempting the Lord putting him, the Lord, to the test. Because in chiding with Moses, what is she really doing? She is questioning God's character and God's goodness and God's wisdom because who is actually leading them? Who led them to Rephidim where there's no water? Was it Moses? No, no. He's, he's just following the pillar. <laughs> So they're really, they're really um, tempting and testing the Lord. They're thinking to themselves, what kind of an all-wise, loving God would do this? Bring this to this place where we're all going to die of thirst. In fact, she began to question if the Lord was even with her. Look at verse 7, the last part of verse 7, where it says, They tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Wow, what a terrible question. How could they not know by this time his presence with them? How could they not know that? The people were doubting the one truth of which they had abundant evidence. Was the Lord with them during the ten plagues? Didn't he plague Egypt and not plague them? Didn't he get them delivered? By the way, turn off your cell phones. Didn't he get them delivered from Pharaoh? Didn't he open up the Red Sea and they could cross on dry ground and then close it up so he got rid of Pharaoh and the whole army? Didn't he do all that? Didn't he turn bitter water to sweet water that they could drink at Marah? Hasn't he been in front of them as a pillar of cloud? Wouldn't that be amazing if our whole lives we followed a pillar, a cloud pillar and a pillar? Wouldn't that be? Well, like I said, we really have it better because he's within us. Um, But how could they not know that he was with them. But they say, is he with us or not? Do we do the same thing as Christians? Don't we? Oh, I just got diagnosed with heartburn. Is the Lord with me? Oh, he must have abandoned me. That's so foolish. I mean, we look at the Israelites and we say how foolish they were. We do the same thing. Of course, he's with you. If you are saved, he is with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Even at the moment of death, even in the valley of the shadow of death, he is with you. When I was going into surgery, I was fine. I was fine. I was at peace. I thought, well, it's a win-win situation either way. I really wanted to come back out the other end because I want to see my grandchildren grow up, get married. I want to be a great-grandmother. You know, you want those things. But whatever the Lord had, it was fine with me. I was happy when I did wake up. <laughs> I was really happy. That happy juice is really nice. <laughs> now, seeing the people were on the brink of stoning him to death, what did Moses do? He did what you and I should do. He took his problem to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord. He said, what shall I do unto this people? I'm surprised God didn't say, take your rod and start smiting them. 
one by one. That's what I would have been tempted to do. No, not with you sweet ladies, though. I'll leave that job to Terry. (laughs) Uh, He said, what will I do with these people? They're about to stone me, Lord. And by the way, this is, if you want to ask your children or your husband or somebody a trivia question, when is the first mention of stoning in the Bible? Here it is. When the Israelites were almost ready to stone Moses. Now, Moses, dear Moses, teaches us something very important here. He shows us the best way to respond to uh, someone who might be verbally abusing us. Someone who is wrongly accusing us. Or treating us with contempt or disrespect or, you know, all the situations you come into out there in life. How do we best respond to situations like that? Well, we respond by using the Moses method. And it's really very simple. What do we do? We call out to the Lord. Yes. And we tell the Lord, and he already knows it, doesn't he? He knows the situations we're in. We just tell him, Lord, what should I do with this person? What should I do in this situation? What we do not do is revile back. We do not return evil for evil. Right? Why? Why? Because the Bible tells us not to. (laughs) And it's, yes, we're to follow the Lord's example. He did not return evil for evil. The Bible says that if at all possible, we are to be at peace with all men, all women, all children, right? And even our enemies, because vengeance is God's, not ours. Vengeance is his. Ultimately, he will repay all evil that is his job, not ours. On our part, even if our enemy asks us for a drink of water, what are we to do? Give it to him. And I thought that was an interesting parallel because that's what Moses does. They want water, and he's going to give it to them. Of course, the Lord will provide it. And so he calls out to the Lord, and the Lord answers. The Lord answers Moses' cry for help. He tells him he is to take the elders of the people and his rod, and he is to walk before them. Walk before the people. That's in verse 5. In this manner, you see, he would be showing them that he was still their leader. The symbols of leadership. The elders that are with him. And the rod. Those are symbols of leadership. He would stand up tall with that rod in his hand and he would just walk before the people. He would be showing them that he was not going to retreat just because of their threats. He would be exhibiting boldness and assurance and also demonstrating the fact that he was not going to abandon them in their time of need. A lot of people in his shoes would just throw up their hands and go home, wouldn't they? They would. I've had it with you people. Goodbye. And you know, that would have been easy for him because his home is right around the corner. In the next chapter, his father-in-law comes and joins him and brings his wife. Remember her? (laughs) And his two sons. So he could have just said, I've had it up to here, Lord. 
I'm leaving. And he could have gone home, but he did not do that. He's a true good shepherd. Uh, so he, he's told he is to go to the rock at Horeb. Now he knows where that is because remember, he's lived in Midian. They're in Midian. He's lived there. It's not too far from his father-in-law's house. He's lived there for how many years? 40 years. So he knows when the Lord says go to the rock at Horeb, he knows where that is. And the Lord tells him that he would stand before him on that rock. That's in verse 6. Now, we are not told how the Lord manifested himself to Moses and obviously also to the elders. He took the elders, you know, from each of the 12 tribes of Israel with him. The Lord said, I will stand there before thee upon the rock in Horeb. Did he appear to Moses in the form of a man? Did he appear to him as the angel of the Lord? Or perhaps did he stand before him in the pillar of cloud? We don't know because we're not told. But however he appeared to Moses and evidently also the elders, it is what is called in theology a Christophany. It was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, which is what this study is all about, right? Finding the times Christ appeared in the Old Testament and all the picture types of Christ in the Old Testament. Now the Lord's statement, behold, I will stand before thee upon the rock in Horeb. That is an unusual statement for the Lord to make in the scripture because it is always the other way around. It is men who stand before God. But for his own specific reasons and purposes, the Lord made this declaration that there on the rock in Horeb, of Horeb, he would stand before men. He would stand before men. You see, the one who stands before another is judicially a person who stands in the position of the accused before his judges. I will get back to that later on in the lesson, but keep that thought in your mind. The rock, I am sure you all know, is a picture of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. The rock is a type of Christ. And that rock is about to be smitten, isn't it? With a rod of divine justice. And in a desolate place. Horeb actually means desolate. It comes from a Hebrew root word meaning to parch. No wonder they were thirsty. They were in a place of thirst. I mean, this proves to us that Rephidim, that that area was dry, rocky, waterless, barren. Another place was also very desolate because it was a place of crucifixion. Mount Calvary, where the rock was smitten, was a desolate place. It was a nasty, nasty place of, of uh, whoops, skipping, of, of crucifixion and death. Well, as you know, again, because I'm sure you all know this story, Moses was instructed to take his rod, his shepherd's staff, and he was to strike the large rock on which the Lord stood before him and the elders. And did he obey? 
Yes, he did. He did obey. He did as he was instructed. And then he and the elders watched in utter amazement as a great rushing, gushing supply of water came forth from the least likely source imaginable, a rock. Why don't you go out with a stick and start hitting rocks? And let me know if any of you strike water, okay? That would be really interesting. Find a big one or a little one and just see if you can strike it and water will come pouring out. (laughs) You know, the Lord loves to really surprise us in amazing ways. Who would ever think that a tree, a cut-down tree, would turn bitterness to sweetness? Would you ever do that? If you, have, if you make a bitter pie, would you put a tree in it to make it sweet? <laughs> uh, who would ever think, I know you don't want to hear this again, but who would ever think it would rain Krispy Kreme donuts? <laughs> manna, delicious tasting manna from heaven. Who would ever think that water would come out of a rock? Isn't our Lord creative? Don't you see? Isn't it amazing? I think he just, he just loves to surprise us. I can't imagine. Well, it says no one can imagine what he has in store for us in heaven. This is going to blow our socks off. Maybe we won't have to wear socks in heaven. It won't be cold. Well, verse 7 tells us that Moses gave the location of the rock, um, the Horeb rock. He gave it two names. I don't know why. But he, I guess he couldn't decide on just one, so he gave that area two names. He named it Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling. Well, now you can probably figure out why he named it those two names. The root for the Hebrew word Meribah is ribah. It means to quarrel, to argue, to debate. But it also carries the idea of bringing a charge against someone, accusing someone. And isn't that what they did? They accused Moses falsely, and in accusing him, they were actually accusing the Lord falsely. Did the Lord Jesus get accused falsely? Moses is the type of the Lord, isn't he? The Lord Jesus. The people got into a heated argument with Moses and made serious allegations about where he had led them and why he had led them there. She was actually, in doing all that, she was testing the Lord by her quarrel with his servant Moses. And by her horrible question, is the Lord among us or not? You see, while God was actually testing the Israelites, remember this is their second chance at their water test. So he's trying to test them to build up their faith, what they do is they take the whole situation and they turn it around in order to test him. Now, later on in Psalm 95 through King David, God gave a very serious warning to Israel. And essentially it says this, don't harden your hearts as you did back in Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness where your fathers tested And tried me, even though they had seen everything I had done for them. We also find that God, through Moses, uh, gave Israel, later on in Deuteronomy 6.16, a commandment. Here's the commandment. Ye shall not tempt 
the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massa. It's all going back to this water test. Now, does that verse sound a little bit familiar to some of you? Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Yeah, who said that? Jesus in his wilderness test. Did he pass his wilderness test? Oh, yeah. A plus, plus, plus. <laughs> Remember when uh, he quoted, well, Satan had um, tempted him, the Lord, to, to throw himself from the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and let the holy angels catch his fall. Because God said in Psalm 91, 11, that he shall give his angels charge over thee, over the Messiah. You know, did the angels take charge over? Did they take care of Jesus during his earthly ministry? So Satan says, you know, that your father won't let you just crash and, you know, splat on the cement down below or whatever was down below. Um, they, he'll send the angels to catch you. And uh, therefore, oh, that would be, you know, wonderful because... Jerusalem is always crowded. All the Pharisees and Sadducees would be there and everyone would see. It would be such a spectacular miracle that they would immediately know that you were sent from God, that you must be their Messiah. And it would be a shortcut to the crown. They would crown you king. And you, here's the temptation, could bypass what? The cross. You could bypass all that death and suffering. It was a temptation for Christ in the flesh to avoid suffering and death, which is absolutely mandatory for our salvation. But the Lord Jesus didn't even blink an eye in responding. He responded immediately to Satan's evil by saying, and he was quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And those words came straight from God's commandment to Israel to not repeat what she had done in Massa when she had tempted the Lord. As God's covenant people, Israel's stubborn disbelief, and that's what all this murmuring is about and complaining and chiding, right? Disbelief. She does not trust God like she should. Her stubborn disbelief and her murmurings were inexcusable. Totally inexcusable. And yet this was her much repeated attitude and uh, response throughout the whole 40 years of her wilderness journey. Didn't have to take her that long. That was her own fault it took her that long. And, and the same attitude eventually culminated in her rejection of God's son, when he came and dwelt among her in the flesh, not just in a pillar of cloud or fire, in the flesh. There he was among her, making it very clear who he was, and still she had the same attitude. She didn't stone him to death like she tried to do with Moses. She did try to stone him. Remember, the Pharisees attempted to stone him to death, but it wasn't the time. But she did succeed. Israel succeeded in doing what? Something worse, probably, than stoning. Yeah, I'd rather be stoned, I guess, than crucified, wouldn't you? They crucified him. I wouldn't like either one. Warren Wearsby says this. This is a great quote. He says, quote, When people are out of fellowship with the Lord and are angry and bitter, they usually do unreasonable things. 
that only make the situation worse. In this instance, the people wanted to stone their leader. He says, how that would have changed their situation is difficult to discern. You know, what if they killed Moses? Then what would they do? (laughs) They'd be out there without a leader, a God-sent leader. He says, but disobedient people often look for a scapegoat. They do, don't they? I was thinking about all these shootings we've had lately. Angry, bitter people, just messed up minds. And they just want to take it out on somebody else, don't they? Why don't they, you know, why can't they just kill themselves and leave everybody else alone if that's how they feel about it? People need the Lord. Boy, this nation. Hate to turn the news on anymore, don't you? Well, the incredible truth about the circumstance at Massa and Meribah is that the Lord, even in his anger, and he is not happy with his people. But still, he graciously provided them These murmuring, disbelieving, thankless sheep, he provided them with water. And water in abundance. It came out in a heavy flow from that rock at Horeb. And the rock became a symbol of the presence and the power of God. It is, as you already know, as I've said, an Old Testament type, a picture of the Lord Jesus. And I can say that very dogmatically because Paul in 1 Corinthians 10:4 writes, he's writing about the the Israelites in the wilderness and he says this. And they did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was who? Yeah. So is this, is the rock of Horeb a type of Jesus Christ? Yes. And we have scriptural proof for saying that. The critical factor about the picture that God was presenting was that before, before the people could be saved from their thirst, from dying of thirst, the rock had to be smitten before they could be saved the rock had to be smitten and in hebrew the word to smite refers to striking severely not just tapping the rock beating the rock very severely elsewhere in scripture that word is translated as killing or slaying slaughtering this is the message, you see, that Jesus was trying to convey to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Resurrection Sunday afternoon, when he said to them, ought not Christ to have suffered these things before he entered into his glory? And then he went, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he went all through the Old Testament, showing them all the ways where it had been taught that the Christ had to first be smitten, be struck like the rock over and over again. You know, we've been looking at all the ways it showed, first of all, before entering into his glory, he had to suffer and die. Before he could offer the free gift of eternal life, he had to be smitten. It was mandatory, ought not 
means mandatory. It was mandatory for our salvation that he die to pay the penalty of our sins. That's what it says in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him, what? Stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. He had to suffer so you and I could be saved. The rock of Horeb was located in a wilderness, right? We've discussed that. A desolate place. Isaiah 32, 2 calls Christ a great rock. In a weary land, in a desolate land. A rock, when you think about a rock, what does it symbolize? What does it, what do you think of when you think of a rock? Well, you think of something really sturdy, (laughs) especially a big rock, like a boulder. You think of durability, strength, shelter, safety. Remember Moses later on is going to hide himself where? In the cleft of a rock. What about uh, where it says. Uh, they that build their. Uh, their foundation on rock. That's what you want to do. You want to build your life on the foundation of rock. Not on sand. Because if you build it on Christ. Your life on Christ. Your life cannot be shaken. The floods might come. The trials. The winds might blow. But you will stand the storms of life. And of death christ is the rock he is durable is he not he is steadfast he is strong he is secure and that is because he's eternal god he's the same yesterday today and for how long forever well in her later history israel remembered this miracle of water from rock in a specific ceremony during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of seven God-given feasts for Israel to celebrate. It was a seven-day-long feast. And that ceremony, the one that commemorated the miracle of the water coming out of the rock at Horeb took place on the mornings of each of the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles. A priest would go down to the pool of Siloam, which was very close to the temple. I've been there. I've seen it. Some of you have probably been there. And I told the ladies yesterday, I'll repeat it, but I will always remember the Pool of Siloam because my mother-in-law was with us and she stumbled on on the rock stairs that go down to it and uh, fell. And uh, it scared us to death because she was in her 80s, somewhere in her 80s. And she fell boom, 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 boom. She didn't go into the pool, but... (laughs) She kind of splatted at the bottom of it, and it really scared everyone on that tour. But she was fine. She was like me this week when I got a bike, put it together, and tried to ride a bike, which I hadn't done in 100 years. And I was going to show my grandchildren how well I was feeling. 
And they put the bike together, and I took, I have a long driveway. It's about a quarter of a mile, and it's very sandy, <laughs> which isn't good to drive on uh, with a bike. Anyway, and I took off, and all the grandkids were watching me, and I was so proud of myself. Look, I've just had heart surgery, and I'm doing fine, and I'm going down the driveway. And my oldest grandson is videotaping the whole thing. And then the wheel, the front wheel hit a root, a pine tree root. And in slow motion, (laughs) I went flying off the bike. And the whole thing is going to be on the world's funniest videos or whatever, you know, that YouTube, YouTube. They videotaped the whole thing. And my grandson is saying, wow, look at grandma. This is amazing. Look at her. Oh, 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 no. (laughs) Grandma is falling. And the whole thing happened like in slow motion. I can just picture, I can still, all of a sudden I was just flying in the air and I landed on my back and I was like a turtle down there. I couldn't get up because I was laughing so hard. I thought, this is ridiculous. I just survived heart problems, and here I'm going to die on a bike, a bicycle. (laughs) But I didn't break anything, just like my mother-in-law falling down in the pool of Siloam. She didn't break anything. Praise the Lord. But she was pretty angry. She didn't want to go there, and we did. So it was our fault, of course. All right, anyway... um, a priest would go down to the pool of Siloam near the temple and he would draw water out of the pool into a golden pitcher. Then he would return to the temple accompanied by the sound of silver trumpets blowing and the shouts of great joy from the multitudes of people who would be there for the feast and all the chants of the Levitical priests who would quote the words of Isaiah uh, 12.3. Did I already skip that? Was that on the other one? Yeah, there they are. 12.3. They would be quoting these words. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. That's what the priests were chanting. And then they would march around the altar as a chief priest would ascend steps up to the top of the altar and pour the water libation with a wine libation onto the altar. Well, that's what they do every, the first six days. Then on the seventh day, the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is called Hoshana Rabbah by the Jews to this day, it is known, it, it, that means the great day of the call for help. Remember that, the great day of the call for help. On that day, the seventh day, the priests would not just march around the altar one time. I imagine they still do this today. They march around it seven times, and while they are marching around, they chant these words from Psalm 118:25, which are, Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Now, if you turn to John 7, verse 37, you will find out that that records the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles in one particular year. In other words, it was the great day of the call for help. And... um, 
the water from the pool of Siloam had been on the seventh day, it would have been poured on the altar, on the west side of the altar, as the temple choir. You're going to love these guys. That's the temple choir. It's kind of a motley-looking group. There. <laughs> I, don't, I think there were probably more of them in the temple choir, and they were probably cleaned up a little bit better. I don't know, but that's the only picture I could find. But as the, as the priest is pouring the water on the west side of the altar, the temple choir is singing the great Hallel which is the words from Psalm 114 to 118. It's a really long song, but included in those words are these words from Psalm 114, verses 7 and 8. Tremble thou earth at the presence of the Lord. Get that? The presence of the Lord at the presence of the God of Jacob, which turned the rock, what rock? The rock at Horeb turned the rock into a standing water. In other words, it came gushing out, but then it formed like a pond at the bottom. It didn't just soak into the earth. It had to be like a pond so they could come and bring their flocks and their cattle and everything. It says, we turned the rock into a standing water, the flint of the rock into a fountain of water. You know what that tells us? The flint was actually turned into water. You know, God could do that. He didn't bring up an underground spring. He turned the rock, the flint of the rock, into water. That's what it says. He can do whatever he wants to do, so that's what he did. Now, remember all this, because it was in this very context, on this seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and this particular ceremony, which is commemorating the water from rock miracle, that the Lord Jesus, who was present on that seventh day of that ceremony in Jerusalem, cried out loud for everyone, and there would be millions of people there, cried out loud for everyone to hear him say these words. If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me. And what? Drink. He who believeth in me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. You see, the rock of Horeb miracle was a prophetic type, a picture of the very one who was standing right there in their midst before, you know, all the people in the temple. He was crying out these words of invitation and the effect of it on the priests and on the Sadducees and the Pharisees and, and on the multitudes. It just had to be paralyzing to hear this man with this booming voice in the midst of them saying these words. There could be no doubt at all that he was claiming to be what the rock of Horeb pictured. He was claiming to be sent from God, the source of living water. He was claiming to be the Messiah. And the effect must have been paralyzing. It was the great day of the call for help. It was when the, the priests had just been talking about joyfully drawing water out of the well of salvation. It was right when the choir had just sung, Save now, O Lord, we beseech thee, save now. And okay, there he is, the God of Jacob, 
And he answers their call for help by an open invitation to come unto him and drink. Because he is the well of salvation. Do you see when you see it in context how much it means? You have to know the Old Testament, put it all together. But it's amazing what it meant to the Jews. They understood it better than most Christians. As Israel under her deliverer drank from the physically life-sustaining stream that flowed from the smitten rock of Horeb, Jesus now was offering those who believe on him a never-ceasing, ever-flowing, soul-quenching, inner eternal supply of spiritual living water. Which would you rather have? The spiritual water any day, right? As Moses smote the rock in order for the water to flow, so it was mandatory for Jesus to be smitten. After his death and his resurrection back to heaven, who did he send to earth to take his place? The Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost who filled the apostles and all the other believers. And the rivers of life began to flow. Why? Because the rock had been smitten. You see the order? The river flows yet today, doesn't it? It's still flowing for all those who are willing to come to Christ and drink. A golden jar of water taken from the pool of Siloam was nothing compared to the mighty power of the living water available from God the Son in the person of God the Holy Spirit. All that other stuff that they did, all those ceremonies and rituals and all that, that those were just ritualistic shadows of the heavenly reality. And this is what Jesus wanted the people that day on the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles to understand by his words of invitation to come to the reality and drink. All these rituals are now not needed anymore because the reality is here. You don't need the types. You don't need the shadows. Come to him and drink. Those people left that day after all those ceremonies. You think they felt that God-shaped vacuum in their heart filled? No, not unless they really had faith. And most of them were just going through the motions like so many people today are religious. But they're not. They don't have a personal relationship. They haven't come to the true water and drunk from his well of salvation. The water that flowed from the smitten rock, and the rock was Christ, the water that flowed was a prophetic type of God, the Holy Spirit. The Lord told those who would drink of his living water that they then would become channels of living water to a thirsty world. He said, he that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly, out of his inner man, his heart, shall flow rivers of living water. You see, once a person has partaken of the water of life, come to Christ and drunk from him, you know, into, intaked him, and what, how do I say <laughs> imbibed him or whatever, um, received him, I should just say that. Drink and um, eat are just, you know, 
metaphors to receive Christ personally. But once you have done that, then we should not become like a sponge and just take in, take in, take in and never give out, right? But if we're going to be like a sponge, a sponge in order to give out has to be squeezed, doesn't it? And sometimes, well, often, usually, almost always as Christians, we need squeezing so that we will, out of our bellies, will flow the living water to other people. Um, uh, We are to be a spring of ever fresh water giving forth continually to those around us. As real water satisfies man's physical uh, uh, thirst and produces fruitfulness, you know, nothing will grow out there without water, will it? So, too, that's in the natural realm, but the Spirit of God satisfies a person's spiritual thirst and then enables him or her to produce spiritual fruit. Don't you want to bear fruit? Yeah, I hope you do. Well, during the Feast of Tabernacles, um, the Jews were just reenacting... They were just reenacting a tradition that could never satisfy their inner souls. But Jesus was offering them living water that could not only quench their spiritual thirst, but also give them eternal life. His invitation of John 7, 37 is the gospel in three verbs, really. He said, come, if a man thirst, let him come to me and drink. What are those three verbs? Thirst, come, drink. You have to realize your thirst. Just like a person, if they want to get well, they have to realize they're sick, right? (laughs) You have to realize that you're thirsty, that you're not satisfied, you're not fulfilled by this world, that you're lacking something. You have to know your thirst, then you have to come. And what's the third thing? Drink, drink. He didn't say, did you notice? He didn't say, if any man thirsts, let him come under the communion table. Hmm. He didn't say, let him come unto my church, my denomination. He didn't say, let him come unto baptism or anything else you could throw in there. What did he say? Come unto me. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. You have to come to him. Now, the sequential order of events. This is interesting that we find in Exodus 16 and 17. Uh, is is very fascinating in light of their Christological uh, nature, the sequence. What we found in chapter 16 was, or what we discussed, was manna, a manna from heaven. Manna from heaven pictures Christ's incarnation. <clears throat> he descended from heaven, didn't he? The bread of life himself descended just like manna, From heaven, he actually went to the house of bread because Bethlehem means house of bread. And he made himself freely available as the eternal bread of life for all who are willing to humble themselves, stoop down and partake of him. What did the people have to do to get the manna? They had to humble, they had to stoop down and individually partake of it, didn't they? We talked about that. In the smitten rock of chapter 17, we're given a picture of Christ, the rock of our salvation, smitten with the rod of divine justice on Calvary. In other words, the rock of Horeb gives us a picture of Christ's crucifixion, doesn't it? So the manna was his incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas. The, um, the rock at Horeb was a picture of the crucifixion. 
and the resurrection, you know, which we celebrate at, at uh, resurrect, I don't like to say Easter, <laughs> at resurrection time. And then also in chapter 17, we have the water, the water that came from the rock that symbolizes the Holy Spirit, which came when? On the day of Pentecost. So this is Old Testament typology, and it's in the right order, isn't it? Manna, incarnation, smitten rock, crucifixion, water from the rock, Pentecost. Isn't that neat? I love stuff like that. Well, the physical rock at Horeb, uh, now there was an actual rock, okay? A physical rock. It represented the human nature of Jesus. He took upon himself the likeness of man, right? Flesh and bone body. The physical rock was also blessed by Christ's divine presence, wasn't it? Didn't he stand on it? Didn't he tell Moses, I will stand on the rock and I will be there before? He was standing on that rock as it was smitten by Moses' rod. And this picture, put it all together, was a prophetic message, which was only understood later, of the suffering and the death of the God-man. Human nature, rock. Divine nature, the Lord standing on the rock. The Lord's words, behold, I will stand before thee. That was Moses and the elders. there upon the rock in Horeb. Point to the time when the perfectly sinless incarnate Christ stood before sinful men as the accused, falsely accused. But he stood before men, didn't he? Should have been the other way around, but he was standing before men, and he allowed himself to be smitten in their place, in our place, in order to provide salvation. Well, there would be yet another incident in Israel's wilderness journey, 40 years later, when water would flow out of a rock. Don't confuse these two water out of rock miracles. Some people get them, get them confused. Or they think there was only one, or they don't know when they happened. The first one, the rock at Horeb, occurred very early in the wilderness journey. They have not even gotten to Mount Sinai yet. The latter one occurred 40 years later when the Israelites, Israelites are at, um, at Kadesh Barnea and they are on the threshold of entering into, finally, into the promised land. And on that occasion, 40 years after this first one, Moses was instructed by the Lord to do what to a rock? Uh-huh. <laughs> Speak to the rock. Speak to the rock. This is in Numbers, chapter 20. But the now, 40 years later, how old is Moses? 120. Okay, he's 120 years old. And he has had it. <laughs> he is so filled with frustration at his people who were still murmuring after four long decades about everything. Can you imagine? 
Can you imagine that? 40 years, people that always grumble and complain. And he is he has had it. He has just had it. And you can't blame him. He's 120 years old. And so he vents his anger by using the rod to smite the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And in his anger, how many times does he smite it? Not just once, twice. He wasn't even to smite it once, but he is so mad. It's kind of like a punching bag, you know? You take out your frustrations on that bag. So he's, he really wanted to smite the people, didn't he? But instead, he smote the rock twice. And the Lord God Almighty was very displeased. He was not happy at all. And you might not think this is fair. And you might have wondered about this for years. How, I mean, Moses had been so good for 120 years. And so, okay, he blows it at the end. You know, he's a little bit angry, but who wouldn't be? And he hits the rock instead of speaking to it. No big deal. But what happened? Because of that disobedience, God did not allow him to go into Canaan, into the promised land. Doesn't that seem kind of harsh? Have you ever wondered about it? Thought, wow, thought we had a God of mercy and grace. That's re- you know what that teaches us. So, that teaches us something about Almighty God. It teaches us how seriously He takes His prophetic pictures. He is drawing a picture here. He is making. He is very serious about the types of His Son that he was drawing for all of us in the Old Testament. And Moses messed up that picture. It's like if you made a really pretty painting and then your little grandchild comes and scribbles all over it, you'd be a little bent out of shape too. So God was pretty bent out of shape because he, Moses marred his picture. But he is a God of grace. You know what? Did Moses ever get to enter into the promised land? Yes, he sure did. Who was standing with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Where is the Mount of Transfiguration? Is it in the promised land? Yes, it is. Moses got to enter into the promised land. So don't think our God is not without mercy. But he wanted to show how serious he takes his prophetic types. You see, Moses messed up the picture of Christ once for all suffering and death, which was presented with the smiting of that first rock, the rock at Horeb. He smote it once, right? Christ died once for all. By smiting a second rock, he made it appear as though Christ would suffer more than once. Is that true? Does he ever have to go back on the cross again? No. And I'll get back to that a little bit later. However, it's interesting to notice that although Moses disobeyed, the Lord still caused water to come gushing forth from the second rock. And this manifests the wonderful grace of God because in spite of 
Israel's 40 years of murmuring and arguing and accusing. And in spite of Moses' disobedience, water was still provided for all. See, our God is abundantly merciful. He is the God of all grace. He had a message he wanted to declare in those two water from rock miracles about his son and he would still give that message i have no idea if i'm on the right slide anyway let's look at the pretty picture moses so his obedience in striking the first rock he did it right the first time didn't he when he struck the rock at horeb once that gave us god's typological picture of christ's first coming It was necessary that he be smitten, but only once and by his death, he would make salvation possible for all who drink from him, as was true with the manna. Oh, that's why I have that picture. The people had to individually pick up the manna. The same thing is true with uh, drinking. They had to come to the fountain, didn't they? And actually stoop down to get the water out of the, the fountain of water that he came you know, came out of the the rock. They had to individually drink. You can't have your mama drink for you. You had to actually individually drink the water. (laughs) So he's picturing again, you know, that salvation is an individual thing. Uh, Each person had individually partake of the freely provided water. Okay, we learn that the water came out abundantly. You look at chapter 17 and you say, I don't see that. Maybe it just trickled out. It doesn't say that. Okay, it doesn't. But it does in the Psalms. We are told in Psalm 78, 20, Behold, he smote the rock that the waters gushed out. They ran, oh, wait, I'm reading the wrong one. They gushed out and the streams overflowed. That's Psalm 78, 20. And then Psalm 105, verse 41, it says, He opened the rock and the waters gushed out. They ran in the dry places like a river. You see, when God provides, he does so how? Abundantly. Remember when Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it, what? More abundantly. Don't you want that more abundant life? It's ours for the taking. In the second, okay, that was the first uh, water from rock miracle. Now, the second water from rock miracle which is described in Numbers chapter 20, Moses' disobedience in striking the rock instead of speaking to it and striking it twice, as I said, that destroyed the picture of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice because he does not ever need to be smitten a second time. He will not be either. He will never suffer again. He is not to be offered up repeatedly. And there are churches that do that. He is the victim and he is, compl- he is just repeatedly sacrificed. That's an abomination. Um, and the, You know, the book of Hebrews talks about this over and over again. It makes this truth very clear because Hebrews was written for the Hebrews. That's why it's named Hebrews. It was written to largely address the issue of the continuation of Jewish believers. Even after they accepted Christ, they would continue to offer sacrifices. And essentially what they were doing was like sort of, you know, striking the rock twice. 
and three times and four times over and over again. It was really when they were offering sacrifices after the final once for all sacrifice, they were really denying the sufficiency of Christ as the once for all sacrifice on Calvary, weren't they? Anyone who does that today is denying his sufficiency. When he said it is finished, it is finished. No more. Okay, get it? No more. Now, speaking to the rock is a picture of the access believers enjoy because the rock was smitten for them. It pictures all the wonders of God's grace available for us in this life. The water that flowed from the rock in the first episode pictured who? God the... The water that came out of the rock pictured God the Holy Spirit. No, no. The rock is the sun. The rock is Christ. The water is the Holy Spirit. There you go. Okay. He had to be smitten. And then the Holy Spirit came. All right. That's in the first water from rock miracle. But in the second water from rock episode, 40 years later, the water that flowed out of the rock that wasn't supposed to be smitten. It was only supposed to be spoken to. The water that came out of that second rock symbolized the word of God, the scripture. Once a person has received the living, the life-giving waters of salvation by faith, in the sin-substitutionary work of Christ on the cross, his thirst is continually satisfied as he fills himself, as you are doing this morning, with what? The water of the word, the word of God. The written word of God speaks to the believer, and the believer speaks to the living word. This word, the written word, speaks to us. We speak to the living word, the Lord. The death of Christ, you see, is past. And now there is open communication between the rock and his people who drink continually from his word. Are you getting it? You see how beautiful it all is? It's just beautiful. We boldly speak to him because we have absolute confidence in the atonement work of his sacrifice. Interestingly, there are different words used for rock in these two miracles, in the two wilderness rock episodes. In Exodus 17, the word, the Hebrew word for rock is tsur, T-S-U-R, whereas in Numbers chapter 20, the word for rock is sila, S-E-L-A. Now, tsur, the first rock at Horeb, refers to a big boulder, a big rock, great big rock. Sila, however, the one that was to be spoken to, carries the idea of an exalted, elevated rock. The rock... The first rock of Exodus 17 was an earthly boulder in a desolate place. Horeb meant desolate. Upon which Christ stood. And that rock was smitten, right? 
It pictured him on the cross. The rock in numbers, and that was basically a picture of his crucifixion. The rock, water from rock miracle of numbers 20, pictures Christ on high, lifted up, resurrected, glorified. There's also a difference in the rods used in these two episodes of Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. And it would be hard to see this in the English, but the rod that was used to strike the first rock was Moses's rod. We know this because in verse 5, Moses was told to take his rod, take thy rod wherewith thou smotest the river. So his rod was used, Moses's staff, okay? As when he made the Nile turn to blood, as a rod of judgment. It was a rod of judgment. He was smiting the rock. But in Numbers 20, verse 8, Moses was instructed to take the rod. Not thy rod, but the rod. And that was a a reference to Aaron's rod that budded. Remember that miracle? I haven't gotten there yet, but his rod, his staff budded, which was a picture of death, out of death coming life. It was a picture of Christ's resurrection. It was Aaron's rod, we know that, in the second miracle, water coming out of rock, that Moses used because he was told to take it from before the Lord. It was before the Lord because by the time you get to Numbers 20, I hope I'm not losing you, but by the time you get to Numbers 20, they have built the tabernacle. And there is an Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And what is in the Ark of the Covenant besides a pot of manna and the stone tablets of the the Ten Commandments? What else is in there? Aaron's rod that budded. So he was to get that rod from before the Lord. So it's Aaron's rod. It was, who was Aaron? The first high priest. So it was a priestly rod that he was to take up to that elevated rock and speak to, not smite. Another contrast, I'm almost done. Uh, with the two water from rock episodes, is that Moses was told to take Aaron with him in the second water from rock episode. While there's no mention of Aaron in the first one when he struck it. Now remember, Aaron is his brother, but he's also Israel's first high priest. Um, Moses symbolizes the law. The rock of Horeb, the first one, pictures Uh, the smiting of the rock at Horeb, because all of us have broken the law, haven't we? (laughs) No one can fulfill the law, only Christ, the fulfiller of the law. He died in the place of all who have broken the law. But the rod from before the Lord, Aaron's rod, and Aaron himself, who was Israel's first high priest, together at the second rock episode, They together picture the Lord Jesus in his resurrected, exalted role as our great high priest. It took me all that to say that, okay? (laughs) 
Elevated, Selah, elevated rock. Aaron is with him. Aaron's rod that budded, resurrection is with him. You get the difference? The first one, crucifixion. Second one, Jesus elevated on high as our great high priest. No judgment was to be pictured because in his high priestly role, what does he do? He hears his people speak to him, doesn't he? And then he speaks on our behalf. He intercedes for us to the Father. This lesson will continue on another CD titled Lesson Number 12, Part B.